Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery again. Part two this time with Life of Morris Moisha Tugun Cone. Before I start, let me just kindly ask of you that if you're interested to support me and this show and all the other stuff I have planned in the years to come, please go over to patreon.com slash China History Podcast and sign up. Three bucks a month, that's all I'm asking. Thanks in advance for considering. I also keep a begging bowl at paypal.me slash China History Podcast if you'd like to just make a one-time donation and be done with it. Either way, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. So, moving right along. We left off last episode in 1928, following the aftermath of Morris Cohn's tour of Europe and America with the KMT legends Sun Ke, Hu Hanmin, and Sisi Wu. Morris was able to parlay this newfound good fortune into some major bucks as an international arms broker. His next ticket to ride, if I may, was Marshal Li Jishun. Li Jishun was a very high-up military and political figure in the KMT. Chiang Kai-shek used Li as his liaison with the forces in the South. And because of who he was, Li was involved in a great deal of arms procurements. This was a license to print money, and Morris was perfectly placed to get a piece of this action. His cut was always the same, 5%. He enjoyed a whole string of successes putting together all these arms deals for Li Jishun. The Chinese he dealt with knew Morris. He had a little bit of a slime factor to him. But back in those days, using guys like Morris to handle the dirty work of dealing with Western people was something many Chinese political and military men preferred. And besides, whatever anyone thought of him, it always came down to Morris Cohn's past service to Sun Yat-sen and his continued loyalty to the KMT. That still counted for something. So Morris caught another break when Li Qishan appointed him as an ADC, aide-de-camp, to his headquarters in Guangzhou. All this time, Morris was also still helping out Sun Ke, talking on his behalf to more railroad contractors, but mostly he was working for Li Jishun. Not soon after he started, there was a confrontation in 1929 between Chiang Kai-shek and the new Guangxi clique, which Li Jishun was associated with. And as soon as Morris Cohn started to get settled in with his new paymaster, Li Jishun got himself arrested and outmaneuvered by Jiang. So he was suddenly out of the game, and with Li Qishun out, Morris Cohn again had to look for a new source of rice. That same year, Sun Yat-sen's new mausoleum was completed in Nanjing, and there was a grand ceremony to move the father of modern China from his temporary resting place in Beijing down to the new tomb. And out of consideration for his past loyalty to Sun, Morris Cohn was invited to be part of the whole theatrical event in May 1929. Morris Cohn later wrote of that time, quote, I'd hoped for an invitation to the funeral, in spite of being tucked away out of sight, so to speak, down in Canton. I wasn't prepared for what actually happened. I was summoned not to Nanjing, but to go first to Beijing and accompany Dr. Sun's body all the way from the Azure Cloud Temple. I was the only European present. I realized the extraordinary honor that was done to me, but somehow I couldn't feel pleased as I ought to have done. On that journey, there was room in my heart for nothing else but sadness. End quote. 
So Morris Cohn, again, not a participant in the history, nonetheless witnessed it firsthand. The next person who Morris Cohn was able to latch on to was known as the Nantian Wang himself, the Heavenly King of the South, Chen Chi Tang. What is there to say except his story and all the drama of 1920s and 30s China politics was great, but I'm guessing not many of you have heard of him. There's so many of these guys like Chen Chi Tang throughout Chinese history and definitely in the Republican era. There have been a lot of these figures. He did a lot for the city of Guangzhou as far as modernizing it and spiffing the place up in the early 30s. I covered him in that 10-part Warlord History series. Again, I invite you to go check that out. Chen Tang ran things in the south for Jiang. Naturally, Jiang didn't trust him, and for good reason, too. Morris Cohn himself said of his new master, quote, A new and different part of my life began. It wasn't a very happy part, either. Up till now, I'd served my chief, whoever it was, Sun Yat-sen, Sun Ke, T.V. Song, or Li Ji-shun, with my whole heart and without thought of personal gain. With Chen Chi Tang, it wasn't quite the same, and I never got close to him. End quote. And it didn't take long for the warlord Chen Chi Tang and Jiang to come to loggerheads, and by April of 1931, Chen Chi Tang and Jiang Kai-shek were at each other's throats. The rival southern government was now openly competing with Jiang for political control of China. In five months, the Mukden incident was going to go down in Manchuria, and that will add a whole new headache for Jiang and for all of China, I suppose. I would say, right about now, considering Moisha Cohn's long life and things he saw and did, these years, 1929 and into the early 1930s, these were some of his best years. Thanks to his past reliability within the organization, Cohn was still on the payroll and served Chen Tang well in procuring weapons from all over the place. If there was going to be a big military showdown between Jiang and the southern government, well, they figured they'd better be well armed. A lot of military hardware was pouring into southern Guangdong, and Morris Cohn was getting 5% of whatever deals he was able to bring to the table. Morris had already styled himself as General Cohn for many years, and finally, in June of 1931, the competing nationalist government in the South actually bestowed on Morris Cohn the honorary rank of Brigadier General. At last, it was official. He was able to say he was a general, albeit with an asterisk. In addition to buying arms for the Southern government, Morris also made himself useful within the Chen Tang organization as the usual fixer and errand boy. The business he took care of for his Guangzhou masters often took him to Hong Kong. One thing hadn't changed. Moisha's burn rate when it came to money was still as blazing as it ever was. He threw money around all over the place just as fast as he made it. The Hong Kong establishment elites of the early 1930s were aware of Morris Cohn and regularly encountered him at one social or business function or another. To put Morris in his place, these British elites in their correspondence and in the newspapers would always refer to him with quotation marks around the word general. They showed him Morris was having a heyday, and because of the kind of work he did, he rubbed elbows regularly with all the movers and shakers in the south of China. He mixed with the military men, the political leaders, the industrial elites. He knew them all. Because he always seemed to be in the picture of whatever was going on at the time, he acquired this reputation as the ultimate man of influence and as a wheeler-dealer. The press had a field day blowing air into this myth, and Morris... He did his thing, fueling the myths and stories using all his various tried-and-true ways. Around this time, he was even referred to in the press as, quote, the Lawrence of Arabia of China. <laughs> Another paper called him the uncrowned king of China. The BS was flying all over the place as journalists bought into the sensationalist rumors, many fueled by Morris himself. Over and over, he was referred to as a powerful factor in the rise of the Nationalist Party. And no kidding, in one article, 
He was called, quote, the real president of China, whose commands are said to be obeyed implicitly by the Chinese. <laughs> Our Moisha. By 1932, with Morris riding high in the saddle and flush with success, he was thinking the time was just about right to cash in on his fame and reputation. With a good portion of the population believing he was Chiang Kai-shek's right-hand man, Morris headed back to England. As before, but this time only more so, Morris arrived with the usual array of extravagant gifts for his family brought back from China, he spent lavishly on them and enjoyed another grand homecoming. I know the story of Morris Cohn that we're interested in concerns the China aspect of his life, but there was also a lot going on in the whole Cohn extended family, and I think nothing Cohn did or experienced in China could match the joy he always had in his various ad hoc homecomings. When people about town asked him what he was up to, Morris would say, importantly, quote, I'm now a military organizer in the Cantonese forces, acting as liaison officer between the southern government and the foreign powers, end quote. If there was one thing Morris knew how to do, it was knowing how to add just enough schmaltz to the words he was saying. He was more and more perceived as a major big shot in China, and for this reason, people looking to do some kind of buying or selling in China sought him out. Morris remained in the UK until March 1933 and traded on his name, earning plenty of 5% commissions, making intros, and working a few deals between British and Chinese buyers and sellers. Back in Hong Kong, Morris began to try to build some bridges with the Americans. He would try and make himself useful to them in a number of ways. He hosted these dinner parties all the time at his residence, which was always at the Hong Kong Hotel. That was the grand hotel of its day. It was built in 1868 and was situated right on the most choice spot on the central praia, the waterfront promenade. This is today where DeVoe Road would be. The Hong Kong Hotel occupied the space where the landmark and the central building are today. Into the 1930s, Morris lived as high on the hog as he ever did, shuttling back and forth between Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Hong Kong, always hanging out at the top hotels and clubs of the day, living large, annoying a lot of people, surely with his self-importance. He received another booster shot when his rank in the southern government was upped to Major General in April of 1935. But things weren't going too well back in Manchester. Morris's father, Joseph, was not in good health, and the filial son rushed back to England to be with his ailing father. He got there just in time to be with Joseph Cohn for his final days, and he passed away on July 13, 1935. Morris was at his side when the end came. He stayed in Manchester for a few months and stepped into his father's shoes as paterfamilias. He arranged for his sister Sarah's wedding, did his best to support his grieving mother, and was, as always, the big spender, taking care of all the needs and wishes of his family. And Morris remained ever vigilant, on the lookout always for any deals he could get a piece of. He didn't just sit around Manchester taking care of his family. He traveled about trying to drum up business that essentially put him in the middle between the British side and one of his many Chinese contacts. If something happened... Moshe got 5% of something. If nothing happened, he got nothing. This was a line of work that required one to hustle and be useful to others. And Morris Cohen had these two qualities, and this was mostly how he made his living. He wasn't getting rich taking a salary from Chun Chi Tang's people, but working for them allowed him to establish contacts with key Chinese in the government and industry. By mid-October 1935, Morris headed back to China. The Japanese hadn't invaded yet, but everyone could tell something was in the air. Nothing good was happening as far as China's political situation. The nationalists were still split with competing governments in Nanjing and Guangzhou. And we all remember from past episodes that October 1935 was also the time when Mao Zedong and his surviving comrades finished their long march and began to set up camp in Yan'an. 
So Morris Cohn arrived back in China just as things were hotting up there. And his benefactor, Chen Ji Tang, well, he's going to lose out against Chiang Kai-shek and ended up having to flee China on July 18, 1936. And Morris saw this train wreck before it actually happened. So he bailed from Chen's organization and once again went to Sun Ke and his people. And that bond with this son of Sun Yat-sen was still as strong as it ever was. He also ended up working for the mayor of Shanghai, Wu Tiecheng. Wu was a long-time follower of Sun Yat-sen, and later one of the top KMT officials in post-1949 politics. Morris made himself useful to Wu Tiecheng, and in so doing was very dialed in to various departments of the Shanghai municipal government. He shuttled regularly between Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Hong Kong during these days. Someone had written of Morris back then, quote, He was a lively addition to General Wu's frequent and popular luncheons and dinners, and he was otherwise an easy, simple type, seeming to need no visible means of support, but wandering ceaselessly among foreigners and Chinese of all sorts. One wondered maybe if he occasionally didn't report the news to somebody, end quote. So, 1935-1936, I guess you could say, Morris peaked right about here. Sure, he had his detractors, and he couldn't fool most people, but during this time, Morris Two-Gun Cone had about as much respectability as he could have possibly hoped for. It was well known and acknowledged by all that he was certainly well-connected to a whole bunch of people inside the nationalist government. His association with Sun Yat-sen, Madam Sun, and the Song family was well known to all. His connections were real, and the China partners he found for Western business interests almost always panned out, like he said. People returned his calls. Morris was a player, mixing with the establishment. He had made it. He was waking up every day in one of the most exciting places in the world. But as the middle of 1937 approached, all of this is going to come crashing down on Moish and a lot of others as well. Let me quote something the acting trade commissioner in Hong Kong wrote to a colleague about Morris after he was paid a visit on July 30th, 1936. Quote, it may interest you to know that General, that's in quotation marks, Morris Cohn, parentheses, two-gun Cohn, called this morning and discussed the situation in Guangdong. In the course of the interview, he told me confidentially that the central government was considering stimulating British interest in South China so that in time it should develop into and be regarded by the British government as a sphere of British influence. Such an idea savors of the Victorian era and the <laughs> partition of the melon. And Cohen's record, which is doubtless well known to the embassy, does not inspire confidence. Nevertheless, he is closely in touch with Chinese official circles, and there may be something in what he says. End quote. July 7, 1937, the Marco Polo Bridge incident happened. Morris was in Shanghai when that incident went down. He was still on Wu Tiecheng's payroll. Wu had been made the governor of Guangdong, and Morris followed him down there after things began to get real hairy in Shanghai. November 12th, Shanghai fell. Next stop for the Japanese army was Nanjing. Amidst all this chaos that the year 1937 always evokes in China, Morris didn't really go out of his way to let his family know he was alive and well. The news of the savagery being committed in China by the Japanese military made its way back to the UK, so they had to wait this one out and pray for news one way or the other of Morris's death, or if he survived, his whereabouts. Morris rode out the storm like everyone else did and returned to Manchester upon hearing upon the death of his sister, Jane, who passed away in Rhodesia. It was a sad time for the Cohen family. It was doubly sad for Morris because not only did he lose a loved one, but his nice little China world was starting to fall apart right in front of his eyes. When Morris Cohen went back to China, he resumed work as a fixer for Wu Tiecheng, and as he always would, he stayed close with the Songs and looked after Song Qingling and always showed genuine concern for her well-being. By year's end, Morris vacated the premises along with the Guangzhou government and headed west to Chongqing, 
with Wu Tiecheng's appointment as Minister of Overseas Chinese Affairs and of KMT Affairs in Hong Kong and Macau, Morris's continued employment was assured. During this early period when the KMT was setting itself up in Chongqing, Morris made a trip to Hong Kong to handle something on behalf of Wu Tiecheng. Among other things, Morris also saw to the rental of an apartment on the peak for Song Qingling to stay in, far from the bombing raids going on in Chongqing. Whilst in Hong Kong, Morris drove Madame Sun around and ran errands for her, always packing two guns for her protection. Morris continued to be a high-profile figure, always holding court at the Hong Kong Hotel. Someone wrote about Morris Cohn from these days, quote, The general was playing his role of picturesque old China hand those days. He would sit in the lobby of the grips day after day, slightly drunk, cheerfully ready to fasten on anyone who came by. He didn't have many troubles. Madam Sun paid him a pension, and he played a lot of poker, usually with Wu Tiecheng, and dabbled in various real estate deals and so on, just for the fun of it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It was a sort of hazard getting through the grips lobby around noon. If you didn't run into General Cone, you were apt to fall in with one-armed Sutton. I used to see him most Sunday nights in the grips. He would sit at the table and we'd have a few drinks. He was living on his reminiscences by the time I met him, end quote. Others said of Morris Cone from this period, quote, In Hong Kong, I played poker with him and lost money. He was there and he was showing card tricks. I think when he played with friends, he was completely honest. He had a good sense of humor and was a first-class bastard. He was very active and a very jolly one. He made people fond of him. We all knew he was a character, somewhat of a rogue with a somewhat unsavory past. It somehow didn't come through at all. Everybody was very fond of him. Morris was there, right in the middle of everything, and very much part of it. Very jolly, very benign, a very kind friend. He used to be very fond of children. He was very entertaining, showing card tricks. He could deal himself a full house quite easily, without anyone knowing anything about it. End quote. Part of Morris's shtick when people would make him out to be the big deal that he liked to be seen as was to respond, Oh, I'm just a Yiddish boy from the Edmonton Irish Brigade. September 1939, the Germans invaded Poland, and now World War II was in full swing. Wu Tiecheng hit the road, traveling around Southeast Asia, trying to raise money and support for the China Relief Fund. Morris accompanied him and got to travel in style, the only way he liked. Because he was so close to the center, Morris got the chance to hobnob with all the diplomats and big shots wherever they went, Philippines, East Indies, and Malaya. By the spring of 1941, Morris was back in Chongqing. I checked the book I had on John's service to see if he mentioned Morris Cohn. He didn't, although they were both in Chongqing at the same time. John S. Service I covered in an earlier CHP four-part series. If anyone's interested to go check that out, one of my favorites. Well, the second half of 1941, how to describe those days, it was rough for everyone. Chongqing was getting slammed mercilessly, and as December rolled around, everyone knew Japan was going to make a grab for Hong Kong. Morris was there when it happened, all the time trying to get Song Ching Ling to flee to safety, but she refused to leave all the way up until the final moment. Even she knew she was of no use to anyone except the Japanese if they captured her. So Morris was part of the gang that got Madame Sun out in the end. So when the bombs began raining down on the inhabitants of Hong Kong, Morris Abraham Cohn was there too. He got caught up in the whole ugly mess. When the roof caved in on December 7th, 1941, a day that lives in infamy in more places than the USA, 54-year-old Morris Cohn, he lost everything. When he was rounded up by the Japanese, his only possessions were the clothes on his back, 
and whatever he had in his pockets to give him warmth in the chilly December Hong Kong climbs. He was thankful to still have a padded coat that had been a gift from no less a personage than H.H. H. Kong himself. After Hong Kong fell, the foreigners were rounded up and went through a sorting period that had everyone packed into makeshift holding centers and hotels. And finally, Morris and 2,325 British, 290 Americans, and 60 Dutch ended up in the notorious Stanley internment camp. Morris occupied Block 16 of the compound that housed 93 men and 26 women. The first six months were horrific, and everyone slept on the cold floors and went to bed hungry every night. The Kempeite, Japan's version of the Gestapo, they had a thick file on Morris and knew he was real tight with all the big KMT leaders. They put him through the ringer a whole bunch of times and knocked him around trying to get information out of Morris. It had been a while since Morris had to take his lumps like this, but going back to his days on the streets of the Whitechapel district and on the Canadian plain, not to mention in Radzinov during his childhood, eh, Morris knew how to take a punch. So, 1941, 1942, and into 1943, Morris endured the humiliating and dismal life of a prisoner of war. He wasn't the only one to get it. Japanese cruelty and deprivation was dished out to all the Western prisoners. During this period, Morris suffered from a number of maladies, same as everyone else in his situation. He lost 80 pounds and endured the same miserable daily hunger these internment camps were famous for. Despite the hardships, someone later wrote of Morris Cohn during this period, quote, He wasn't one of the chaps who was saying, Look how hard up I am and how miserable I am. He was always a cheerful sight, always a friendly word, gregarious. He would always make you laugh, end quote. Morris caught a break when because of his Canadian citizenship, he was able to get on a list for a prisoner exchange. This was in February 1943. By September of that year, Morris was once again a free man, back in the Great White North. By December, he began a new phase in his life. This was his Montreal period. That's where he ended up after his release from Stanley. When he arrived, the press was there to greet him and get his account of everything going on in China and with his time as a prisoner of war. Of course, Morris knew how to handle this kind of thing. And Morris, being Morris, checked himself into the Windsor Hotel, the grandest hotel of its day. The NHL had been formed there only 26 years before. A steady stream of Journalists, local officials, and prominent members of Montreal's Jewish community came to call on Morris Cohn. The Canadian Jewish Congress threw a big bash for Morris that was officiated by Samuel Bronfman himself. Morris and Samuel Bronfman were two years apart in age, and both had gotten kicked out of their birthplaces due to the pogroms. And one other little fact, they both lived in Wapella at one time or another. At this shindig that the Montreal Jewish community threw for Morris, 500 people showed up to honor him. And 57-year-old Morris got to stand before everyone at the banquet hall. A great success and a major macher in the world of China business and diplomacy. He got to tell his story and spoke of his humble Jewish origins, his hardships, failures, and how he came to Canada. There was no doubt quite a redeeming moment after all he had gone through since 1922. Morris came out and said the words you'd probably never expect to hear, and a sign that maybe the war had changed him. He said, quote, I can tell you simply that I am very happy to be alive and out of the Stanley internment camp at Hong Kong. One thing I wish to make clear, I am not a big shot. People here have made a fuss over me, and I don't know why. It is true I was appointed a major general by the government of China. It is also true that I am a friend of China. But really, I am the same Morris Cohn who came to Canada as a Jewish immigrant when I was 16. Most of the things that have been written about me were much exaggerated. End quote. 
Yeah, Moisha always knew how to lay it on thick, no matter in his grossest exaggerations or deepest humility. So it was quite a homecoming for Morris Cohn, and he stayed in Montreal for a while and got back into shape. It was quite an ordeal that he went through, and now his fortunes were quite different. So where to go from here? You'd think that he'd be highly in demand for his consulting services. But the phone calls didn't come as fast as Morris thought they would. Basically, despite everything that Morris had been able to accomplish, a lot of people still didn't take him too seriously. His reputation and his shady past sort of made him someone that a lot of people instinctively didn't trust. So the Montreal years, immediately after his hero's welcome, were not starting off well for Morris. Morris went and got himself hitched. He married a woman named Ida Judith Clark. Ida's friend said of her new husband, quote, He wasn't a good-looking man, an odd-looking man but a very charming style and blazing green eyes. He had penetrating eyes and a very warm, hearty laugh. Somehow, there was something about his personality. When he spoke, you listened, even though his English was abominable at times. He could capture attention. End quote. The wedding was quite the event in Montreal. They toured Canada, and Morris was given a warm reception wherever he went. It was quite a sensation whenever Morris came to town. And wherever Morris went, he was a hardcore supporter of Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist government, always talking them up and trying to raise money or political support for them. When Morris mixed with the local Chinese, he was treated with deference. Someone who accompanied Morris to Chinatown once wrote, quote, He was lionized here at first. When he took me into a restaurant, especially a Chinese one, down in Chinatown, oh my God, they didn't know what to do first. They bowed and kowtowed and served him like a king of England, end quote. So this was a good time, but it wasn't to last. For a while, Morris got to mix with the cream of Montreal society. He was a big fish in a small pond for a moment, but Morris was running low on the one thing that keeps you at the top money. He might have been comped wherever he went, but that didn't fill his checking account. So Morris had to go out and look for work. At his age, it wasn't looking good to be entering the job market. He had a very unique skill set, and it wasn't like there were jobs that could use a guy his age and with his particular experience. So he began to live off his wife, Judith, pretty quickly. She had a nice women's clothing boutique that brought in an honest income. For all of 1944 and 1945, Morris was trying to get something going, but Judith was the one who brought home the bacon every night. Around this time, when the Zionist movement was really ramping up, some organizations approached Morris and essentially asked him to lobby his contacts in China, and they asked Morris to convince his well-placed friends in the nationalist government to not vote against any UN resolution that might call for a new state of Israel. They had checked Morris out to see if he was the real deal. One of these people later wrote, quote, One day I was walking down the street with him to take him out for dinner, and three other people were walking down the street. Ambassador Wellington Koo, the Chinese ambassador to the United States, a highly polished and sophisticated gentleman, and H.H. H. Kong and T.V. Song. And by God, the first thing I know is they embrace the man. So this business of knowing them wasn't any put on. End quote. Morris worked tirelessly to bring together Zionist interests and Chinese diplomats. He proved himself useful to them and played his small part in the creation of the State of Israel. After the war, Morris was itching to get back to China. In January 1946, he was back for the first time since he left in 1941. En route, he made another one of his random visits to see his family in Manchester. And when he hit town in Shanghai, Morris started working the lobbies like the old days, looking to get in on any deals where there was a possible opening for him. There he hooked up again with Wu Chung and did his best to get in on any big-ticket infrastructure projects. He also remained close to the Songs and still served Madam Sun whenever she called upon him. Morris was able to drum up enough commissions to keep his ship afloat. As 1946 
transition to 1947, Morris was stable once again. In early 1947, he came to the aid of someone in the Tianjin Jewish community. They had offered to pay Morris a couple hundred thousand dollars if he'd use his influence to get one of their friends off the hook who had been arrested by the China local authorities on some charges. And Morris got the guy set free, but this group in Tianjin... Morris got the guy set free, but this group in Tianjin, they ended up stiffing Morris, and he chased this big chunk of change for the rest of his days without success. But a lot of the time, Morris's connections and abilities to get things done in China weren't what they used to be. 1947 wasn't the same as those days before 1937. It was a whole new world in China, and the times they were a-changing. It wasn't an environment that Morris could thrive in. Not at his age, anyways. Morris went back to Canada and tried his luck in Ottawa. Someone wrote of that time, quote, We talked about his colorful career as a bodyguard to Sun Yat-sen and also his later, more questionable life as an arms agent with the various warlords in China. He told a very good story with many expletives. For a young officer, this was a real romance. He liked to live well, and he liked to get as close as he could to the seats of power. Morris was a great name-dropper to indicate the influence he had with certain people and routes to get things done. But I don't think he ever got his hands on any big deal that I ever heard of. I don't think anybody would have trusted him. He was a person of great interest because of his previous role in China and his name-dropping and the color that he could add to what was often a rather dull day at the office. End quote. Morris, for all these years, had been saying that he was going to write a memoir, but he could never even begin to get organized. Feeling he was no longer a player, he picked up and went to China in September 1947 to try and get back in the game. But nothing panned out, and he was back in Montreal the following year. During that period, one of the people who socialized with Morris and Judith Cohn said, quote, We went out a lot together. Morris used to take us to the Chinese restaurants that he knew about. He knew everyone in the Chinese section of town. We used to go to Chinatown with him and just walk into any restaurant, and it was like, he owned the restaurant. It didn't matter how crowded they were. He always presented a grandiose figure with his spats and his bowler hat and his cane. He got this kind of respect from people. They would just bring food that nobody ever heard of, end quote. Morris tried to trade on his name, but despite all the honor and recognition, nothing was panning out, and he was back living off his wife Judith again. After October 1949, everyone in China split up. Song Ching Ling and Li Qi Shen stayed in China. Wu Tia Cheng and Chen Ji Tang went to Taiwan. TV Song, H.H. Kong, and Sun Ke all went to the West. It was over for Morris Cohn in China. Now it was the PRC, and in the new political environment, there was no room for characters like Morris Cohn. The marriage, with Morris gone constantly, predictably suffered, and with Morris down on his luck and everything he was trying ending in failure, his life was soon reduced to relative poverty. He was borrowing money from everybody he knew and even reducing himself to get Judith to borrow money on his behalf. The early 1950s wasn't a good time for Morris. He was drunk all the time and difficult to be around. The marriage ended, and Morris left Canada for good and headed back to England. He moved in with his sister Leah. All those many past years when Morris would come to Manchester to visit his family, laden with gifts, he shared his success with everyone. Now he was back and had eh, essentially nothing the Chinese in England, who knew Morris, passed the hat and didn't allow their old friend to slide too far. In June of 1952, Morris took a trip to Taiwan, did his usual hang-out-in-the-lobby routine and tried to get something going. A New York Times writer from that time mentioned running into Morris, quote, I saw him practically every day. He would just hang around the lobby. I got tired of listening to his stories. In fact, he was a goddamn pest. He was always the hero of these stories. To hear him talk, he was responsible for the whole Sun Yat-sen revolution. So far as I could make out, 
He had a minor role in the whole thing. He was just a thirty-eight caliber bore. I certainly didn't socialize with him. I had to endure his stories. And endure is the word. I could not avoid him. End quote. As he began to get himself set up in Manchester, Morris tried to launch all kinds of merchandising endeavors, all with some sort of a China angle, but he didn't know what he was doing and nothing ever came of anything. And besides, he had no idea how to run a company. Just as the portcullis were about to come crashing down on his hopes, his biography hit the shelves. He finally did manage to tell his story to a longtime acquaintance, Charles Drage, who wrote The Life and Times of General Two-Gun Cone. I saw it listed on Amazon for $550, used in hardcover. If you couldn't personally sit in a smoke-filled hotel lobby with Morris Cone and listen to all his tall tales and stories going back to the beginning, this book was the next best thing. It was a long and rambling account of Morris's life as told by Morris himself. Therefore, the whole book itself was suspect. In Daniel S. Levy's definitive work on Morris Cone's life, Two-Gun Cone, a biography, he debunked plenty of the claims made in Drage's book. People started to poke around, and word got out that Drage's book was mostly fiction. Nonetheless, Morris went on tour to promote the book, and it was like, The past five years never happened. He was back. Around this time, Morris self-importantly started to get word out that if the opposing governments in Beijing and Taiwan needed his services to bring about reconciliation and reunification, he was ready to help. One American diplomat in London who had an encounter with Morris said, His present address is the Mayfair in the West End of London, a far-from-inexpensive hotel near Piccadilly. There seems to be little question, however, that he's in financial straits and that he hopes, through his visit to Beijing, to redress his fortunes. He seems to feel that he continues to enjoy the goodwill of Madame Sun Yat-sen, and perhaps he does, although he was said to still be a member of the Guomindang. He claims to have friends on the mainland as well as Formosa, and to have refused to identify himself with one side or the other. He professes that his objective is to serve China, by promoting an understanding between Beijing and Taipei. Conceivably, he would be willing to work for both capitals. End quote. Song Ching Ling put in a good word for Morris and got him invited to the 1955 National Day celebration in Beijing. The China government picked up the tab. A couple months after the celebration, Morris had his big homecoming in Hong Kong. And then a funny thing happened. Morris used his ways to talk himself back into China. He crossed the Hong Kong-Shenzhen border, and then these rumors began to fly. Morris was just going back to China after his Hong Kong visit to go see Song Ching Ling. But somehow, a rumor got out that caught fire that said the real purpose of his secret visit to China was to unify China and Taiwan. So Morris became an overnight sensation, and there was all this buzz in the air that this old guy with friends in high places in the KMT and CCP was making a secret visit to China and had the blessing of the KMT to speak on their behalf. This created quite a storm in Taipei. The nationalists totally disavowed everything Morris said. They said they had nothing to do with him whatsoever, and he didn't speak for them, and and who is this guy? The whole thing was a circus, and Two-Gun Cohen made quite a sensation in the Chinese press, and he, of course, knew how to milk this for all it was worth. He stayed in China until March 20th, 1956. The Chinese rolled out the red carpet for him, and from that point forward, Morris Cohen became what the Soviets called a useful idiot and played the role of the poster boy apologist for China. He couldn't speak glowingly enough about all the great things going on in the mainland. And this, predictably, got him blacklisted in Taiwan, and at that point, they turned their back on Morris. With the Red Scare going at a furious boil, Morris also became persona non grata in the USA as well. Because of his past association with Sun Yat-sen, Morris was invited to China in April 1956 for Sun's 90th birthday anniversary. Morris, as before, had all his expenses paid by the PRC government, and they milked his visit for 
whatever propaganda value they could get out of it. And like his previous visit, with the Chinese picking up the tab for everything, Morris sort of overstayed his welcome, and after a while, they had to show him the exit. Nicely, of course. It's said on this trip, Morris kept trying to get FaceTime with Zhou Enlai in order to assure him of his effectiveness as a conduit for trade with the West. And then he went back to England, staying at his sister's Leah's place on Broughton Lane in Salford, outside Manchester. There he resumed his role as paterfamilias in the extended Cohn family. And all the time, whenever they assembled and had their wall-to-wall chop-liver family get-togethers, Morris would do that thing he loved to do the most. He'd sit with the nieces, nephews, cousins, and everyone and just regale them with the stories of his life in the Orient. Sidney Rittenberg, who we featured in CHP episode 99, ran into Morris in the Beijing hotel lobby during one of these trips. He recalled, quote, He would be there, very visible, a portly, affable-looking gentleman with a big cigar and all the trimmings. He looked like he might be a traveling salesman who just dropped into town. He was a good storyteller. He would fasten you with his eye in a very genial manner. He knew just how much detail to go into without losing you or boring you. He was one of these people who was a very obvious sort of faker, sort of a bluffer, and yet... He never felt there was the slightest bit of malice in him. He would tell all these tales, and he would swagger, but you always felt that he was a very decent man. End quote. Morris came back to Beijing again in September 1957 for another National Day celebration. He kept up the fight and tried to keep an income stream, but... He kept up the fight and tried to keep an income stream going, but at the age of 70... He was as broke as he ever was. When his ex-wife fell on hard times herself, after all she had done for Morris when he had hit the skids, he couldn't even do anything for her. But it wasn't over for Morris Cohn. You'd think this would be the end. But just as Morris was starting to sink beneath the waves, Rolls-Royce hired him as a consultant to help them sell engines turned out to be the perfect job for him, and this led to other consultancies for Morris. In May of 1960, he appeared on the Canadian version of What's My Line, called Front Page Challenge, an old TV show that ran from 1957 to 1995. I have a link in the show notes where you can see this and get a chance to see and hear Morris in action. You could hear his Polish-British-Canadian blended accent. In January of 1962, 75-year-old Morris Cohn met with 64-year-old Golda Meir in Hong Kong. There, Morris assured the Prime Minister he would do everything he could to lobby his contacts in China to get Israel recognition from the PRC. In the end, though, he couldn't do anything for Golda Meir. Morris was always a tireless supporter of China and always spouted the party line. Even during the Great Leap Forward, Morris was still waving his pom-poms the whole time. During these years, Morris was comfortable once again. When he wasn't home in Salford, he would set himself up at the Park Lane in London and still tried to stay in the game, getting a piece of whatever deal came within his reach. He kept on working for Rolls-Royce, who were very kind and generous to Morris. The job paid all his bills and allowed Morris to live in a style that he was most accustomed to. In the middle of the Cultural Revolution, Morris was invited back to China again for Sun Yat-sen's 100th birthday. On this visit, Morris was able to get into a group photograph with all the top leaders, including Chairman Mao. During the banquet, Premier Zhou Enlai himself walked to his table and personally toasted Morris Cohn, saying, Morris, old friend, Long life. Well, Morris would still work the lobbies wherever and whenever he could, but by 1967, already 80 years old, his health was beginning to decline. From that point forward, Morris Cohn was either resting at his sister Leia's with a King Edward cigar in one hand and a black coffee in another, a stack of newspapers at his side, or he was in and out of hospitals. 
Biographer Daniel S. Levy, again, who has written the definitive biography of Two-Gun Cohn, links to the book at the show notes. He summed up Morris Cohn's life better than I ever could, so let me just quote from his book. Quote, he had little else to do except reflect on his improbable life. Despite the myth that he spent years nurturing, Cohen was not a force in Chinese politics, finance, or the military, nor was he a grand strategist or a political philosopher. His early years and predilections almost seemed to destine him for a life of crime. He ran with petty villains and could have easily graduated to being a, an enforcer, a rum-runner, or holding some position within a large urban mob. He was never entirely to escape his shady past, his darker side as a gambler and a charlatan, yet his makeup was thankfully tempered by an essentially generous soul. By chance or luck, he fell in with a group of Chinese who, while engaging in the sort of nefarious practices that he gravitated to, also yearned for an overthrow of the imperial order in their homeland. End quote. Morris Cohn died in September of 1970. He's buried in Blakely Jewish Cemetery in Manchester. Officials from both governments in Beijing and Taipei attended the funeral. A year later, on September 12, 1971, a headstone was placed in front of the monument that read, This is the tomb of Ma Kun, inscribed by Song Ching Ling, Vice Chairman of the People's Republic of China. Back in 2011, it was announced that Doug Lyman was going to direct a Hollywood movie about Morris Two-Gun Cone. He was teaming up with the great Rob Reiner and Alan Greisman. Beijing Galloping Horse Film and TV Production Company was putting up the money. Doug Lyman directed all those Jason Bourne movies with Matt Damon. I read Doug Lyman dropped out of the picture, and I'm not sure where the Hollywood version of the life of Morris Cone is right now. I believe... Beijing Galloping Horse for a time was looking for a new Hollywood partner to work with. I'd go see that movie. I hope it gets made one day. There was also a, a 1936 movie called The General Died at Dawn, and it starred Gary Cooper, who played this mercenary named O'Hara. The movie takes place in China, and Gary Cooper's character is sort of based on Morris Cohn. I've never seen the film. Again, let me recommend Daniel S. Levy's book, Two-Gun Cohen. And so, from Los Angeles, California, this is Laszlo Montgomery wishing you my very best and thanking you if you made it this far. Take care, everyone, and I hope you'll join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.